0: Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. This podcast is being recorded during the 40th Critical Care Congress here in San Diego, California. My guest today is Dr. Pratik Pandarapande, MD, FCCM. He's an associate professor of anesthesiology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee, and he will be speaking with us today about the always important topic of delirium in the critically ill patient. Thank you so much, Dr. Pandarapande, for coming today.
2: Thank you for inviting me to come here.
1: Um, I thought we'd begin. In the beginning unless you talk about the sort of the definition of delirium and, and how clinicians should be looking for it.
2: So delirium is an organ dysfunction, a brain organ dysfunction that's associated with an acute onset of mental status change. It's a fluctuating mental status over ours. The pivotal feature of delirium is having inattention. Additionally you can have disorganized thinking and you can have perceptual disturbances. But really, one has to realize that inattention is one of the most important features. So you may have other features such as hallucinations, delusions, et cetera, but you have to have inattention for that to be called delirium when it's associated with the fluctuating mental status, et cetera.
1: And what are some of the different tools that can be used by clinicians to help screen for delirium?
2: So just going by a clinician's evaluation of a patient, so just going to the bedside, really misses majority of delirium only about 30 percent of patients of delirious patients are recognized by just a clinician doing a bedside exam and therefore you do have to have validated instruments for measuring or monitoring delirium in the icu and the reason is because most of us are comfortable calling the agitated patient as a delirious patient but we miss the majority of patients in our icu who are delirious because they have the hypoactive or the quiet type of delirium, where the patient is lethargic, inattentive, etc. The two instruments that have good validation in the ICU for patients who are on mechanical ventilation and who are nonverbal are the CAM-ICU, which is the confusion assessment method in the ICU, and the ICDSC, which is the intensive care delirium screen checklist. Both these instruments are validated. The CAM-ICU is a point of care instrument where within two minutes you can evaluate a patient for delirium. As compared to the ICDSE, which is a checklist, the nurse or the clinician who's taking care of the patient evaluates the patient over the course of a shift and then checks off whatever features are seen. If you have more than four features positive or four or more features positive, you have delirium by the ICDSE. For the CAM-ICU, you have to have acute onset of mental status changes you have to have inattention, and then you have to have either disorganized thinking or an altered level of consciousness. So using either of these instruments, one can diagnose delirium in the ICU.
1: I thought uh, one of the interesting areas of your particular research or areas of academic activity is, is the concept of delirium in children, and I was wondering if you could spend a few moments sharing with the uh, members of SCCM some of your uh, recent work in that area.
2: Sure. So, the adult literature, at least recently, we have been able to show that delirium is extremely prevalent. It's prevalent in 50 to 80 percent of mechanically ventilated patients, about 20 to 50 percent of lower severity of illness patients. We've also been able to show, our group, as well as other groups, have shown that delirium is associated with worse outcomes longer ICU lengths of stay, longer times of mechanical ventilation, mortality, and even long term cognitive impairment in patients who survive critical illness. The data among children has just started coming out. There has been a lot of interest in this area, but there's also been confusion among what is delirium versus what is withdrawal states. Until recently, there was no validated instrument for measuring delirium in the ICU. We were using the pediatric anesthesia emergence delirium scale. People have used the DRS as two instruments, and I found that delirium is present in about 5 to 10 percent of critically ill patients. Now using the PCAM ICU, which is the pediatric version of the CAM ICU, we've recently published a validation study in critical care medicine showing the PCAM ICU has high specificity and sensitivity and shows about a 13 to 15 percent rate of delirium. Now this population was not all on mechanical ventilation and had less severity of illness as compared to our adult population. So the rates were a little lower. A particular challenge among the pediatric patients is that the f- instrument that you use for testing cognition has to be age appropriate. So for adults, it's easy. You ask certain questions. Most adults should be able to answer that. However, in children, it has to be according to what their cognitive capabilities are, according to the age. So the PCAM ICU, for example, has been validated for ages Five and above, but we don't have good validation instru- validated instruments for patients less than five because the part of how you incorporate cognition into this has not yet been determined.
1: That was that's fascinating because I was going to ask you what's what's different about it in children, and, and the point that you're making is the the assessment of cognitive ability, and that has to be age age appropriate. It must be a great challenge because then you have to come up with, I would imagine, multiple. Scores that are for the different ages or or something like that?
2: Right, and that's being determined. So, we have in our group a child psychiatrist who works very closely with our group trying to figure out what is age appropriate knowledge with a child. And so, accordingly, the instruments are going to have to be tailored. So, it's quite possible we'll have slightly different instruments for ages maybe three to five, and then when you're younger than that, even dependent on just looking at the patient and not really getting the patient's objective input into your assessment.
1: Is, is that the part of the CAM-ICU where you'll say, does a stone float on water, things like that? Is that the cog, or, or what do you mean when you say the cognitive portion? Right, so
2: those are the cognitive stat testing. So both for inattention, for example, in the CAM-ICU, you ask the patient to squeeze your hand every time you hear the letter A. Now, that's fine for an adult, but depending on the child's age, a child may not even know his alphabets. Similarly, for disorganized thinking in the adult CAM ICU, you ask them questions like, does a stone float in water, Etc. Again, this may not be a concept that a child understands, and so those questions are going to have to be tailored uh, for the children. Additionally, there are pictures as part of the CAM ICU. Again, the pictures have to be made a little bit more kid-friendly, animals, toys that they are familiar with so that they can identify with them.
1: But um, just to take it a step back, are are you and other experts in this particular area comfortable that the concept of delirium uh, can be mapped onto children? Is is there a consensus in your field about that?
2: I think most people feel that there is a significant component of delirium, which gets often confused with withdrawal states. And the problem with this is that at least from the adult literature, delirium has been associated with the medications, such as the psychoactive medications benzodiazepines, opiates, etc. On the other hand, if it's a withdrawal state, you're giving additional benzodiazepines and opiates. So unless we can clearly determine which is which, our treatments are going to be wrong because you are maybe wrongly treating a delirious patient with more benzos when, on the other hand, you want to do just the opposite. So having a good instrument will help us.
1: Uh, I remember a few years ago hearing Wesley Lee give give a talk where, you know, as I tried to share with my fellows and residents that Benzos are associated with delirium, and delirium is associated with death. And so the idea is you need to be careful and minimize to the extent that you can, a lot of these drugs that appear to be associated with delirium. But one of the other things he pointed out was that people becoming perhaps somewhat nihilistic and concerns that why do I need to aggressively look for this? What am I going to do to treat it? And I was wondering if you could take more than the next few minutes and spend some significant time talking about maybe even over the last few years what the research has been focusing in on therapy and what you think the future might be for, for therapy for delirium.
2: So I think you can break it up into a couple of ways. One can think of both prevention strategies as well as therapeutic strategies. So if you look at just the prevention strategies, one has realized that there are a number of risk factors for delirium. Some of them we cannot modify. So you cannot change the age of your patients. You cannot change the fact that a patient may have dementia coming in to your ICU. However, what we've noticed is that the benzodiazepines in particular, opiates is a mixed signal Opiates seem to be risk factors in medical patients as well as in surgical patients, but when you have severe pain, as in trauma patients and in the burn patients, opiates seem to be protective. So there's data on that is probably if you treat pain adequately, you do better with delirium. However, we've realized that now there are an itrogenic or a modifiable component to delirium, and that's the area that we need to focus on. There are a number of strategies one can incorporate. Now, all of the components haven't shown to be beneficial as far as delirium goes, but they have been shown to be beneficial in reducing sedative exposure and improving patient outcomes. And some of these strategies are incorporating the awakening breathing trial. So having an awakening trial linked it with the breathing trial that has been shown to reduce benzodiazepine exposure. The study is also shown to improve outcomes, time on mechanical ventilation, survival, at the end of 12 months, some improvement in cognition. So it may have a role through delirium. In the ABC trial, there was no improvement in delirium when we looked at all patients. But when you look at the sickest of the patients, that is the septic subgroup, there were shortening of delirium days in that group. So there may be a signal over there. The other important component is to start thinking about what agent you're using. So there are people who are studying Analgo sedation regimens where you're using opiates first. Those may be associated with improved outcomes. Now in the one study that was recently published in the Lancet by Strom where they used uh, analgo sedation or a no sedation protocol, they actually reported slightly higher hyperactive delirium rates. However, they did not report their hypoactive delirium rates nor did they show their coma rates. So it's quite possible that we've just shifted the paradigm from comatose patients to slightly hyperactive patients. However, given that all those patients in the lightly sedated or no sedated group did much better, it's unlikely that that delirium shift towards hyperactive in that small subgroup really was associated with worse outcomes. Can
1: you you back up and talk a little bit more about that study, maybe uh, just for the listeners? Because I know it just came out recently. Uh, It might be helpful.
2: Sure. So this is a study done in Europe where they randomized patients to either a group with no sedation and what they defined as no sedation was no sedative agent, but the patients could get PRN morphine to try and keep them comfortable. The control group, on the other hand, had propofol to try and keep the patients comfortable to a targeted level of sedation. In the group that was just receiving morphine, they allowed a number of interventions, so they had morphine given if the patient was not comfortable. They had a nurse and a physician come and check on the patient, try and see whether there was any intervention that they could do. They were allowed up to two rounds of morphine, and if they had any problems, they were allowed breakthrough with propofol, and if they had two rounds of propofol, then they switched to a conventional sedation regimen. However, what they found was up to 86% of their patients could be managed just with morphine alone, and this was a significantly sick patient population, number of patients had sepsis. But it goes to prove that even in severely ill patients, you can manage them just with opiates without using too much additional sedative. Right. Now, I, w-
1: I want to talk about this because it goes along with, um, you know, you're an anesthesiologist. I was trained. I'm an internist by training, but trained a lot by anesthesiologists at UCSF. And the focus, and it goes along with the SECM guidelines in O2. And that's what I'm always trying to teach is start with, You know, I use a lot of a fentanyl continuous infusion. Get the pain under control. Get the stimulation of being intubated under control. And then see if you need anything, right? I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on that sort of approach. I assume you have no issues with me doing that.
2: Absolutely. I think the sort of knee-jerk reaction has been in our ICUs is to get the benzodiazepines and the fentanyl started at the same time. So I often see that my patients are coming to the ICU and the two drips that are already waiting at the bedside are the sedative infusion and the opiate infusion. And you haven't even determined whether the patients need any of them. So I think just like you mentioned, I think we need to step back and say, let's start with the opiates. Let's get their pain under control. Let's get them comfortable. And if needed, and only if needed, we should add the sedatives. The other aspect that has led to this use of sedatives is the whole concept of patients in the ICU being amnestic. And I think in the past, this was an important thing that people felt that patients should not remember anything of their ICU stay. And I've had patients come back to me and a few years ago I would ask them, do you remember anything of your ICU stay? And they would say, no. And I would say, great, I'm glad you don't remember anything. Now I look back and say, maybe I was harming them in a way because there are data now showing that if you have recall of your ICU stay, you actually have less cognitive impairment.
1: And there's concerns with post-traumatic stress also, right?
2: Right. And unlike what we all thought, patients who actually have awakening trials, etc., and so who have recall of their ICU stay, seem to have lower PTSD or lower severity of PTSD than patients who are deeply sedated. There is a study by Girard showing that lorazepam was actually associated with higher PTSD risk. So the concept that amnesia is required to reduce PTSD is sort of debatable now, and probably not necessary.
1: Well, that's that's really very very helpful. I I thought I'd uh, let you conclude sort of at the end of the interview, um, and I, I was going to ask you about haloperidol and and the other neuroleptics. And I think what's so fascinating to hear from from people like you is whether or not we're actually treating the delirium at all and how difficult it sounds like it's been for you and your group to figure out if we're treating it or not. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
2: So I think if you look at the data on antipsychotics, there's no randomized control trial to date which has effectively shown one agent to be superior over the other. There's no FDA-approved drug, antipsychotics in particular, for delirium. In the MIND study, which was published in Critical Care Medicine by Girard and colleagues, what we saw was that when you had haloperidol versus zeprazidone, which is an atypical antipsychotic, versus placebo, most of the delirium symptoms and outcomes were similar in both groups. So what is possibly happening is that all you do is you convert the sort of hyperactive, agitated delirium to a hypoactive delirium. So you really have not treated delirium or got rid of it. You've just changed the subtype of delirium. It's just not as bothersome anymore. And that is what I think is happening. None of these studies, at least the larger studies, have shown any improvement in outcomes. There's a recent study of quetiapine combined with haloperidol. And what it showed was that adding quetiapine to haloperidol as compared to placebo plus haloperidol the quetiapine group had faster resolution of their first episode of delirium. But you have to realize that delirium is a fluctuating course. So it's quite possible that those patients still had delirium the next day, but the study outcome was just measuring resolution of first delirium. So we really don't know at this point whether any of these drugs are doing anything or whether they're doing anything any more than placebo. There's a follow-up study now with almost 800 patients which is getting ready to test the hypothesis of haloperidol, versus an atypical versus a placebo to try and answer this question. Uh,
1: and um, what is your personal thought or practice on some of these drugs now? I mean, we all use them with with a certain degree of frequency. Um, at, at least my reading of the literature is I, I don't think I'm actively harming people by using these drugs. Um, what is your the 2010 thoughts on, on something like that?
2: I think we potentially can harm these patients, okay. I think problems with QTC prolongation are there. One has to keep a close eye on it. We tend to use these drugs, but then add other drugs which we often don't realize prolong QTC along with it. And in the context of studies, you watch that carefully, but you know, drugs, some of the anticholinergics, etc., they all prolong QTC, and sometimes mm. you realize only when you start seeing the abnormalities that you've really caused some harm. So, so actually
1: what I was thinking about was not actually just the, cause That I understand. But I meant conceptually, if I'm monitoring appropriately and I'm not causing malignant arrhythmias, I'm more concerned about your more sort of a philosophical issue. You know, am I causing harm or am I actually doing anything other than masking symptoms? And do you have a sense which way you think this is going to go or is it just we have to do the trial and see what happens?
2: I think we do have to do the trial. But going back to your question, I don't think it's clear at this point that you're doing any harm. You may not be doing any benefit but symptom resolution, but there's no data to say that you're actively doing harm. So I think at least from that standpoint, to get a patient comfortable or at least appropriate care to be given because you cannot have a thrashing patient in your ICU, at least to mask the symptoms till you get other therapies in line, reducing your delirogenic medications, seeing whether you're exposing patients to agents that could potentially be causing harm, at least it gives you time to get all those things in line.
1: And this is all in the background of some of those the recent data that was published in JAMA a couple of years ago showing both the typical and atypical antipsychotics were associated with worse outcomes, not in critically ill patients, right? Um, and, and I, I just I, that's why in the back of my mind it's always concerning where are we going with these drugs, you know?
2: Right, but one has to realize that those patient populations were different just like you pointed out. The therapies were much longer, so most patients were closer to 80 years of age. Our patient population is aging, but we haven't got to a median age of 80 yet. The other thing was most of these therapies were six to eight weeks, and I obviously hope our patients are not in the ICU for six to eight weeks getting these therapies. So slight differences, but I think one has to be aware of the fact that these agents, whether typical or atypical, are associated with mortality, at least in those older patients on long-term therapies. There's a risk of stroke, and these things we do have to keep in mind. However, I think short-term therapies are not associated with those outcomes.
1: But I think the big take-home message that I've learned from your group, and I do try to teach this to the fellows, is, is to look for it. This acute brain failure concept that your group promulgates, I think, is fantastic. Putting some structure around the waxing and waning mental status is helpful from my perspective, both for teaching, uh, nurses, residents, and and for families as well, as you are obviously aware. This can be very disconcerting when family members see this happen to them, right?
2: Absolutely. And I think getting the families involved is critical. We try and have a discussion about delirium with our families so that they know what's going on. They also know what they can do to help. So often families will play the role of trying to reorient their loved one, being that familiar face in the room. We have 24-7 visiting nowadays in our ICUs and family members stay over there and reorient um, their loved ones. Whether they're doing some cognitive stimulation at the same time and whether that helps, one doesn't know right now, but it couldn't harm them, so that's being done. Families also then make a important effort to try and get their patients mobilized a little bit. So right. it's not them doing it personally, some of them do passive range of motions while they're there, but they often ask the nursing staff, It'll be nice if you can get my loved one sitting up in bed, et cetera. So I think it helps with that. Another thing that I've felt really helps getting the family on board is to talk to them about sleep-wake cycles. And often That's a
1: really great point. That's a really, really great point. Thank you for bringing that up.
2: And, you know, often I find that just my telling the bedside team, you know, put the lights on, put the lights off, really doesn't play as much of a role as much as when families come in and they say, you know, it'll be nice to get the curtains open. Let's turn the lights on. And I often tell the family members that, you know, during the day today, we are getting the cycle back. It may be a little bit of discomfort that your family member appears to be in. But if he sleeps tonight, tomorrow is going to be a much better day. And most of them really play along with it. And often we have good success with it.
1: We've been speaking today with Dr. Prateek Pandarapande. MD, FCCM. He's an associate professor of anesthesiology at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. And we've been speaking about this incredibly important topic, delirium in the critically ill patient. It's been emphasized quite a bit here at the uh, annual Congress of SCCM. And I'm very grateful for your time, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Critical Care podcast. Please check out our website, at www.sccm.org iCritical Care for more information, as well as over five years of archived podcasts. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Richard
0: Savell. SCCM offers regularly scheduled, thought provoking webcasts on cutting edge topics within critical care. Webcast participants will receive continuing education credit and have the convenience of attending from their hospitals, offices, or homes. Visit www.sccm.org/webcasts for details. The iCritical Critical Care Podcast is copyrighted material, and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants, and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the society's associate editor for podcasts. Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the medical co director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City, practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Cavetin, MD, FCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or Info at sccm